Hello, everybody. This is Parashat Parashat Shlach. And the parasha begins with Hashem telling Moshe Rabbeinu, Shlach Lecha Anashim, send for yourself men to spy out Eretz Yisrael, the Miraglim. But it's an interesting Rashi, right in the beginning of the parasha. Rashi says, he asks a question, Lama Nismacha Parashat Miraglim, Leparashat Miriam. Why did the Torah put the parasha of Miraglim right next to the parasha of Miriam? Says Rashi, so because the Miraglim are supposed to take a lesson from what happened to Miriam. Miriam was punished for speaking Lashon Hara about her brother, the Miraglim are supposed to take a lesson and not speak Lashon Hara about Eretz Yisrael, and that is why the two parashas are together. Now, the, the, the interesting thing is that the Mepharshim ask that seemingly, what's the question over here? Usually whenever Rosh asks, why are these two parashas together? There's something off. It's out of place. Chronologically, they're not supposed to be together. Terrorists put it together for some reason. Here, it's actually chronological. They were in Midbar Paran, Miriam spoke Lashon Hara, she, they waited for seven days, and then from Midbar Paran, they sent them Raglam. So what's bothering Rashi over here? So interestingly, I saw that in Sefer Ruach Elio, he brings that the Medrash says it a little differently. The Medrash says that, why did Hashem tell Moshe Rabbeinu to send them Raglam specifically now, right after the story of Miriam? Meaning, why does these two events happen in this sequence. Not why did the Torah write it. The Torah wrote it because that's when they happen. But why did Hashem orchestrate that they happen this way? Says the Medrash, the same idea because the Miraglim are supposed to learn and take a lesson from what happened to Miriam in regards to their own mission of seeing our Yisrael. And says the Baruchim and Das Torah that you see from here a very, very basic thing, which is that we live life and we see things and we experience things to people around us, things happen, and we don't we don't think for a second, wait, what is that supposed to teach me? How am I supposed to change after seeing that happen? And Tamar's just telling us that the Miraglim are called, they're called Rishoyim, they're called wicked, because they didn't take the time and the energy to stop and to think and to try to internalize what is it that I'm supposed to be learning? What is it that I'm supposed to be improving after seeing what happened in the world around me? What message should I be taking? The parasha tells us that Hashem chose specifically a language of shlach lecha. Rashi says, why does it say lecha for yourself? To say shlach sends as Rashi, because Hashem said, look, the very idea of trying to send Miraglim is a bad idea. I told Klai Yisrael, I told the Jewish people that go to Yisrael, it's an amazing land. Why are they coming and asking to send Miraglim? It's a bad thing. It shows that they don't trust me. And Hashem says, therefore, I'm not going to command you to send Miraglim. You want to send, go send and see what happens. So that's how Rashi explains that the actual sending the Miraglim already was an issue, was a sin. The Ramban asks the obvious questions. As you look later in the Torah, when Moshe Rabbeinu begins to conquer the lands of Sichon and Aig, the Torah tells us, Vayishlach leragel es Yazer. Moshe Rabbeinu sent Miraglim again to Yazer, to these cities, to try to figure out how to capture them. Yeshua and Haftar, we see Yeshua when he wants to capture Yerichai. He again sends Miraglim, he sends Kalev and Elazar. So, is sending Miraglim okay? Is it not okay? If it was a bad idea, shouldn't we have learned our lesson? And in general, if it was a bad thing, then why didn't Moshe do it? Moshe is a very, very, very big tzaddik. Why did he agree to send Miraglim? So the Ramban says the essence of sending Miraglim, there's nothing wrong with that. Every time Klai saw fought their wars, they fought them They fought them using the regular rules of warfare. They did not rely on Nisim. They used spies to collect reconnaissance to get data. They built 
war machinery, they used weapons. Klai Yisrael fought with regular rules, and then HaKadosh Baruch Hu came in and made miracles for them. But there was always that initial Ishtadlis Klai Yisrael had to do. There's nothing wrong with sending spies in the very essence of sending spies. So what was wrong? What is the issue over here? Why here do we say the Jewish people are being punished, and this is the beginning of a big, big tragedy, by them coming to ask the Semiraglim? So the author of Kelm explains, the Ramban means it as follows. Says the author of Kelm, how does a person know if his ishtadlus is the right amount of ishtadlus, if it's the right amount of effort, and how does he know when it's coming from a lack of bitachin and amun, a lack of faith and belief in HaKadosh Baruch Says there's a very simple way to test and to see if it's coming from a good place or coming from a bad place. What's the bar? How do you know? When a person does true ishtadlus, what he means, what he knows in his head is that he understands that HaKadosh Baruch Hu runs the world. And there's nothing I can really do to make a difference, but there is a, so to speak, an obligation that I have to do my part, but really, ultimately, HaKash Baruch will decide what happens anyways. If a person lives like that, there's no, there's no stress, there's no hyperventilating, there's no panic. When a person feels like it's in his hands, and if he doesn't control it properly, it's all going to fall apart, then a person panics, and a person gets stressed out, and a person, because he feels like it's up to him. Klai Yisrael, when Moshe Rabbeinu retells the incident of the Meraglim in Sefer Dvarim, it says it a little differently. He says, You all came to me. He says, Rashi, Kulchem, Be'ervuvya, with a mob. It was the young ones pushing the old ones. Everyone was running. And he said, Nishlecha Anashim, send for us men. You stressed out. You had a mob. It wasn't done calmly. You didn't wait for Akash Baruch to come and tell you to do this Ishtadlis. It was your own initiative. It came with a a lot of tension and a lot of hype. And right away, says the author of Kelm, that's the first sign that a person is missing the boat and a person thinks that ultimately he controls it. And that's why this scenario of sending Miraglim was wrong. Klai Yisrael thought it on their own. They pushed for it. It wasn't Akash Baruch telling them to do it. And therefore, this Ishtadlis ended up leading to a very, very, very bad place. And that's something we always have to keep in mind, is that yes, we have an obligation to do a shadless. Yes, it's our part to do. But it has to be done with that knowledge and with that faith in mind that I'm just doing my part, but ultimately nothing will change. Akash Baruch Hu makes the final decisions and he will make it happen regardless of how intensely and how stressed out I am about what I'm doing. The parasha tells us, in Pasuk Tazayin, when it goes to the names of different spies, it says that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu changed Hoshea's name and named him Yehoshua. And Rashi famously comments that Yehoshua is a language of prayer of Ka as in Hashem's name, Yehoshua should save you from the council of the spies. And the question that many, many commentaries ask, is that why is it that Moshe Rabbeinu only feels a need to daven for Yeshua? Why is Moshe Rabbeinu not davening for Kalev as well? And all the more so, what is it that Kalev we find when he comes in to Eretz Yisrael? Rashi comments, the Torah tells us, Vayavoy at Hebron, Torah uses a singular language, as in he came to Hebron. So Rashi brings the Gemara and Saita that tells us that only Kalev really was the one who went into Hebron, and he went and davened by the Maris and by the, by the by the graves of the Amritzik and Yaakov, and he begged them to help 
you know, intercede on his behalf that he should not struggle and fail in the Atas Meraglim. So why is it that Yeshua is the one, Moshe Rabbeinu is davening for Yeshua, and Kalev has to go and daven for himself? What's going on over here? So the Chafetz Chaim in the Sefer Shmir Salashin, he has a second Chelek, Chelek Beis, and in there he has pieces on the parsha. and the bottom there he has a note, and he addresses this question. He says a very, very important concept. He says, there's two very different ways that a person can deal with the fact that he's amongst people who are a negative influence on him. A person finds himself surrounded by people who are not like him and do things that he feels are wrong. He has two ways to address it. One way is to grab life by the horns, have a confrontation, come out strong and say, I disagree with everything you're doing, I think you guys are wicked, and really just have it out with them right there and then in the beginning. And what happens is, is at that point, he, he has a lot of benefit. The benefit is that he is not going to get sucked into their plans because they're going to be in an open fight. There's hostility. They're not talking to each other. They both know they're not friends. And that's it. They are at war with each other. The other option is that a person tries to lay low. He just nods and says, yes, yes, make believe he's on board. But really he does his own thing and quietly he's trying to keep doing what's right and try to avoid confrontation so he can lay low. The issue with that is obviously that he may get sucked in eventually. You know, you play along enough with them, you might get sucked in. If you're part of them, you're friends with them, they can influence you. However, there's pros and cons to both sides because the all-out hostility guy, he can be in a big trouble. Number one, God forbid they could try to harm him. They could even kill him. Also, he has no real hand over manipulating them. He has no way to, in the future, kind of try to stop them because the second he starts talking, they're going to shut him down. The guy who made believe he was part of them, if everyone thinks he's on their team, he can do stuff, so to speak, in enemy territory, and he can change things differently. And he's also safer. Don't try to attack him. So, says the Chavaz Chaim, Kalev and Yeshua were these two different methods. Yeshua was Moshe Rabbeinu's Talmud. Everyone knew that. And no one bothered trying to get Yeshua on the side of the Miraglim. And therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu was worried about his safety. And he said... Hashem should save you, may Atzas Meraglim, literally just keep you safe from the Meraglim. Kalev, he was Ruach Acheres Haiseimai. Kalev was the one who had two spirits. He had a Ruach Acheres, another spirit. It means he made believe he was on their team, but he secretly did his own thing. But Kalev, because of that, when he was in Eretz Yisrael and he felt that he was getting sucked in to their plot, he went to Avis's kever and he davened by the Avis to help Hashem, to help him not get sucked in. He felt that he was getting dragged in and he asked for that siyat deshmai to not get sucked in. But what happens ultimately when they come back is that Yeshua tries talking and the Gemara tells us that as soon as Yeshua tried saying something, Raglam shut him down. Kalev was able to be Vayahas Kalev Asa'am. Kalev quieted them down because he was made believe he was part of them. He said, oh yeah, Kalev's in our team, for sure, let him talk. And then he tried and he actually managed to try to get something out there which tried to convince the people that maybe we should listen to Maishu Rabbeinu. Now, which one is right? Says the Chavetz Chaim, look at the Psukim. Yeshua and Kalev, sometimes he lists, the Pasuk lists Yeshua first, sometimes he lists Kalev first. There's no one that's greater than the other. Each person has to know his strengths. Which Nisayan, which struggle could he overcome better? Is he more of an open conflict type of guy and that won't work for him better? Or is he more of somebody who can lay low but he can ultimately keep to his own even when he's making believe he's part of them? Whichever one a person can do, says the Chavetz Chaim, that's what you should do. It's just a matter of having in mind to do what Akash Baruch Hu wants and sticking true and not getting sucked in on either front.
just want to end off with one last point. In the end of the parsha, we're given the mitzvah of tzitzis. The Meshachach has a beautiful remez, a beautiful idea in the mitzvah of tzitzis. And he says there, he, he begins, he says a, a very, very fundamental point. He says how we understand that a person is put into this world, HaKadosh Baruch Hu made this world in a way that a person has to perfect this world. This world is given to a person to perfect it. A person, by doing the mitzvahs, a person perfects his world. That's how we're given the mitzvahs of mitzvah of milah. The mitzvah of milah is HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells a person that, yes, I made you, but I made you in a way that you can add and you can perfect yourself. And that is the beginning of every Jewish man's life, is he has to recognize that he's an Eved Hashem, he's a servant of Hashem, and his job is to begin by perfecting himself and the world around him. The Air Force says in Meshach HaKadosh gave us the mitzvah of tzitzis. The mitzvah of tzitzis is to remind us of his idea. How so? Because the Svarim HaKadoshim tell us that this world is a, it's a parable to a garment over HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We understand that a person puts on a piece of clothing, a person is covering himself. This world is, so to speak, it's a mask, it's a cloak. It hides HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this world. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's full essence, obviously, we cannot see. This world blocks it. Now, this garment, says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's not finished yet. There's still some strings hanging out in the front and the back that are not fully woven yet. They're not fully tied. You, the person, says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you have to take the strings hanging from these garments, you have to have them in front of you, and you have to recognize that it's your job to start tying the knots, to start tying everything back. Everything in this world has to be brought back to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But there's interesting things, says the Meshachach. When you look at the tzitzis, the halacha is that there has to be one-third that's already knotted and, 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 and wrapped, and two-thirds have to be loose strings. And that's to tell us that HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells you, you just have to get going. I'm going to help you. I'm already there nodding from the other end. You do you, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I'll come in and I'll help you. But a person has to recognize every time he looks at us, that there's so many mitzvahs out there that I have to do. There's so many things that I could do to perfect this world, to make this world a better place. And every time I do a mitzvah, that's what I'm doing. I'm taking Kaj Baruch Hu's Bria, Kaj Baruch Hu's creation, and I'm completing it and I'm bringing it out to its fullest potential. We should have a wonderful Shabbos.